Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, September not, uh, September 11th, 2019 edition of the Carolina Weather Group, the little weather get-together. This is show number 291, and tonight we have on with us Mark Suddeth from HurricaneTrack.com. You probably remember Mark from being on our show a couple of times. So uh, we originally was going to talk about the documentary uh, that Mark put together over the past uh, couple of months, uh, looking back at the 2018 hurricane season with Florence and Michael. But as we all know, Dorian moved through the area last week. And so uh, Mark was also out there uh, in the midst of Dorian. So we're going to get his perspective as well of what he experienced. So it's kind of a twofold show tonight. We're going to kind of recap Dorian and right. the effects that it played not only in the uh, the Carolinas, but also Florida, the Bahamas, even up into uh, Nova Scotia. And then we're also going to be uh, talking about the documentary that Mark put together and a fantastic piece that we encourage you to watch. So uh, this is a live broadcast. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to see your questions, comments. You can do that one of many different ways. We are live streaming right now on Facebook Live Periscope. YouTube and uh, on our, um, well, yeah, yeah, our, that's our three uh, platforms and Twitch. That's the fourth one. That's the one I was looking for. So you can find us on all of those. Uh, please submit your questions, comments. If you're listening on the podcast version, uh, we'll let Mark uh, tag uh, his his Twitter and his uh, web uh, webpage towards the end of the show. So if you have any specific questions for Mark, you can uh, reach him that way. So. Uh, we are looking forward to tonight's show and uh, really um, excited to have Mark with us. Um, I did allude to Hurricane Dorian, so I do want to uh, pass it off to Jared Smith. And uh, Jared's going to give us kind of a recap of how Dorian affected us here in the Carolinas. Jared? Yeah, it was uh, about a week ago. Uh, uh, this time a week ago, we were starting to see the effects of Dorian being felt right here in Charleston. Um, and uh, pretty harrowing Wednesday night into Thursday. Many of us were without power, knocked out hundreds of thousands of people from power. Uh, fortunately, at least here, we've gotten a lot of power restored. So that has been good. But unfortunately, um, as we were watching a couple days prior, uh, it hammered the Bahamas. It, it, the uh, Abaco Islands and Grand Bahama. Um, those two took the hardest hit. Other parts of the Bahamas were mostly fine, but um, but it, it, the the news is not good from there. We are the death toll is up to fifty, but that is undoubtedly going to rise. Over about twenty five hundred people have been reported missing at last report in the Bahamas. So um, you've seen the pictures of the devastation. You've seen that there's, it's just really just not a, uh, just not a good scene uh, there on Abaco Island. A lot of evacu, there's a lot of evacuation. So about 5,000 people need to still be evacuated off of that island. Many are going to Nassau. Nassau is filling up. Um, some have been coming over to the United States. Um, they're just really trying to find a safe place uh, for these people who survived this terrible, awful Category 5 storm. Um, there will never be another Dorian and thank goodness for that. Um, down here in the Carolinas, we, uh, you know, we, we took a, a, we got lucky here in Charleston, uh, just, you know, just talking about how it's uh, scraped up South Carolina. We, it, once again, we dodged a bullet here, but we did get some pretty good wind gusts out of this. So we're just going to, so the way I'm going to do this, we're just going to come up the coast a little bit. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the impacts that we had. So, um, that's not to say that Charleston didn't take a, pretty decent uh, smack on the mouth from this guy. 
Um, we had some pretty good wind gusts here, rivaling or maybe even a little worse than Matthew. Anecdotally speaking, I would say that this is a harder hit than Matthew. Uh, but for example, some of the top gusts, uh, 69 miles an hour at the airport, uh, 66 miles an hour at Sullivan's Island, 63 miles an hour at Isle of Palms. So uh, clear uh, right in tropical storm force there. We actually had a gust to 98 miles an hour at the Edisto buoy, uh, about 30 miles offshore, uh, buoy 41004. Um, uh, Six miles east-southeast of Deweese Island, it was a 92-mile-an-hour gust. And then five miles east-southeast of Fripp Island was 92 miles an hour. Uh, Shay Gibson, his weather stations, captured uh, 80 miles an hour at Chutes Folly in the Charleston Harbor, as well as at Fort Sumter. And a peak gust of 67 miles per hour was uh, recorded at Folly Beach, at the Folly Beach Pier there. Beach erosion, coastal flooding. Fortunately, the coastal flooding was not as bad as anticipated. Uh, there was the, the risk for five to seven feet of storm surge in Charleston. Looks like that peaked about a little around three feet and it all came at low tide. So we got very lucky there. Uh, still had some saltwater flooding, but actually the king tides the week before were worse. Um, so we really got lucky there. We, in, in many aspects of Dorian, we, took a, we took a, got a real break there. Uh, rain totals range about five to 10 inches, uh, pretty much right in the line with the forecast. Better off when you go to the Northwest, uh, where we got closer to the eye wall, looking at, uh, going up into, uh, Wilmington's area of responsibility. This is where we get into Myrtle beach. And this is where we start getting into some of the tornadic activity. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, but Myrtle beach took a pretty decent hit 60, 70 mile an hour wind gusts up there. Um, let's see, we've got. You know, we got some uh, buoy observations, 78 knot gusts at frying pan shoals. Um, and, 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 and again, this, this guy was still, a, it was still a really good windmaker, but fortunately a lot of the worst stuff stayed just offshore. Uh, but we started seeing some signs of that five to seven foot surge. It didn't hit Charleston, but it actually hit further up, up into North Carolina. Um, rain totals uh, range from uh, 15 inches at a, a weather station, at a, a cook Ross station on Polly's Island. Um, down to 10 inches at uh, Myrtle Beach at one of the mezzanine stations there. And again, back in Georgetown, even, you know, six inches of uh, six inches of rain, but a decent storm surge impacts from about Georgetown North. Uh, but North Carolina, as, as it so often does, just by virtue of its geography, took it on the chin. Um, and and, and we look at a, when we look at North Carolina, we had, a, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a landfall um, at a, right around Cape Hatteras. Um, there were several damaging tornadoes there as well. Uh, as uh, the iClip Cape Lookout, this is from the Weather Service in Moorhead City, as the iClip Cape Lookout, peak wind gusts of 110 miles an hour were recorded at the Cedar Island Ferry Terminal, 89 miles an hour at Fort Macon, 85 miles an hour at Beaufort, 82 miles an hour at Cape Lookout. So uh, this this was a real good this is a real good windmaker, and it, it and and it pushed in a lot of surge, four to seven foot storm surge, a lot, lot of uh, water rescues. Ocracoke Island has um, had several people trapped in attics. Um, two fatalities have been attributed to the storm, both after the storm. It wasn't direct storm impacts, but it was a, you know, a, a heart attack. And Scotty, the other one was a... Um, Somebody fell off a roof, unfortunately, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, they were cleaning some debris off. And yeah, yeah, so, so there were a couple fatalities from Dorian here in the U.S. Um, that can be attributed to the storm. Uh, 190,000 power outages in North Carolina. We had 200,000 here in Charleston County, and, and credit to uh, the local, uh, 
seriously, up and down the coast, the linemen did a wonderful job. We saw them. I saw them staging a week ahead of time, and uh, they were uh, they were on it. I was out of power for 30 hours, and it could have been a lot worse. So uh, definitely, my appreciation goes out to them. Now, the unsung part of Dorian, and the part that kind of took some of us by surprise was the tornado outbreak that happened in Northeast South Carolina, Southeast North Carolina. Um, there were several tornadoes uh, <clears throat> that touched down about 11 in um, 11 tornadoes in Wilmington's area of responsibility. We'll just go down these a little bit here. We had several, uh, we had several reports of a wedge tornado in Myrtle beach. Um, the most damaging tornado was actually in, um, it looks like it was, uh, where, where was it? I had it, I had it in my notes. Ah, I had it in my notes. And, and of course it's gone because this is what happens. All right. So Emerald Isle, Carteret County. Yes. So the most damaging tornado was in Emerald Isle, Carteret County. Um, it was rated an EF2 estimated winds of 115 miles an hour. Um, and so, so that on top of the flooding on top of the surge is, uh, w was just, uh, you know, harrowing as it is what do you do in that situation you know you're in a storm surge you're told to get to the lowest floor and but but the water is there so what do you do you know it's a it's an interesting uh, conundrum for tropical meteorologists and weather forecast offices trying to communicate this uh, but yeah there were 11 tornadoes in wilmington's area responsibility there was a ef0 near burgaw in pender county uh, one mile northeast of st helena there was a ef0 with 70 miles an hour again a lot of these were the typical you know the typical uh you know spin up quick spin tornadoes uh, that we see with these. Um, but, you know, little EF zeros, max winds estimated at 80 miles an hour. This was in another one at Long Creek, um, in North, Long Creek, North Carolina. There was one in uh, Brunswick County, North Carolina, uh, near Wilmington, actually, 65 mile an hour EF zero. Uh, storm survey found EF2 damage in Carolina Shores in, Brun uh, in uh, Brunswick County. So, so we have, you know, just, just numerous tornadoes in Myrtle beach. It was an EF zero with 75 mile an hour winds, um, went towards a mobile home park. A trailer was destroyed. Um, and of course this is all preliminary, a lot of work to go, uh, as far as the storm surveys, uh, go, this is going to be an effort that's going to take weeks, uh, to get all of this fully cataloged and, and, and logged in. But, um, incredibly it could have been much worse and 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 that's not much comfort to the people who have been uh, who have been uh, you know, displaced uh, especially in North Carolina but for as bad as Dorian was for the for the states um, it really could have been quite something worse so uh, we'll keep you updated as uh, we uh, work on the recovery efforts and 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 as those go along but now Scotty I'm gonna toss it back back to you so we can get started with Mark. Thank you, Jared. And uh, as you're talking about, I've seen a few tornado report um, storm surveys done yesterday. So uh, that continues to happen across the, uh, the North and South Carolina coastline. So I do want to bring in Mark Suddeth. He's next, but I wanted to let you know, you uh, don't forget, you can take the Carolina Weather Group with you anywhere you go, on the go, anytime, on our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen uh, to your podcast, all you got to type in is Carolina Weather Group, and you can find us. So we'd appreciate you to uh, subscribe to our podcast, give us a, a rating, let us know what you like, what you don't like, and 
uh, share it out with your friends or family so uh, you can keep up to date, not only with our latest shows, but also weather updates that we do throughout the week. So let's bring in Mark Sutta tonight. Uh, he does uh, operate the HurricaneTrack.com website. Mark, um, you, my friend, uh, were in the middle of Dorian as it made its pass through the Carolinas. So uh, first of all, welcome back to the show and uh, tell us a little bit about uh what it was like experiencing Dorian out on the Outer Banks. Well, it's great to be back. Thanks for the invitation. Um, when we agreed that we would do this date, you know, we knew it was peak of hurricane season, and luckily I'm in my office in my home with power in Wilmington, North Carolina. It could have been that I would be reporting from a hotel room or maybe my vehicle. You just never know this time of year. So it's good to be here. Yeah, you know, I'm going to tell you what, Scotty, Dorian was certainly the hardest most challenging event of my 25 years of doing this. And there are so many stories in it that, you know, next year's documentary, we'll have to cover that, that um, went to Puerto Rico for it. Uh, and it sidestepped Puerto Rico, almost like a little shuffle, you know, like, ah, you spent all that money to come down here and no Dorian for you. And then it went over the Virgin islands where uh, one of our partners is from Brent. And we have a, a live camera there at his house. So we actually got to see the hurricane become a hurricane over his house while we were in Puerto Rico, which is just weird. It's like, wow. I mean, how does that work? And then, of course, we all thought that it could be a real beast and maybe go across Florida, the peninsula, maybe the southern peninsula around Vero Beach or West Palm, and then go into the Gulf of Mexico. But then we saw how things changed. And... Of course, we had the Bahamas catastrophe and then the waiting. And boy, it just was agonizing. We did go down to Florida. Uh, we flew back from Puerto Rico to Miami, rented a vehicle, drove to Wilmington, loaded everything up, went back to Florida, set up equipment, and then went back to the Carolinas. And then I met it, you know, got to look Dorian in the eye in Buxton. Right down there, there's a restaurant that's apparently no longer in business. It's called the Fish House, right there. And, um, along Highway 12, along Pamlico Sound, and that's where I waited for it. Um, and, you know, part of me, the scientist in me and the weather geek was excited to be able to look at the blue sky, and it was absolutely calm. You know, the wind went down to nothing. Um, but just kind of knowing, too, what this hurricane meant, that what it left behind in the Bahamas and all the people down there that were killed or suffering, and that's going to last for at least a generation. So it's a weird feeling, you know, it's a sense of accomplishment. I uh, got a very good solid pressure reading. We had two barometers right there, uh, literally texting people at the National Hurricane Center with, you know, passing information along live to Dr. Jack Bevan, you know, the forecaster on duty. <clears throat> so there's a sense of accomplishment there. Then, you know, we also set up all this equipment, being able to watch these live cameras and knowing that some of these GoPros that we put out, like we did for hurricane Michael in Florence were hopefully working for Dorian. And sure enough, we, we succeeded. And the one right there, not far from where I was when that backside came in, I'm telling you folks, that sound, there's nothing like if you've ever been to the outer banks, you see the Pamlico sound, imagine it's pushed out so far that it's just mud and muck as far as the eye can see all the way out you could it's probably it'd suck you in like quicksand but you could walk out there i guess if you had snowshoes or something 
and you could just disappear into the fog and mist or whatever. And then the eye passed and gravity started taking over because the water starts coming back. And then that wind kicked in. I mean, it was literally like somebody dialing up a knob very steadily and bam, that 90 mile per hour wind came in real quick and it looked like a tsunami uh, slower than what we remember from that 2011 tsunami in Japan. But nevertheless, that water comes cascading in and it rose several feet watching the tide gauge go up down at Coast Guard Station at Hatteras and, and talking to the National Hurricane Center and they were watching the hydrographs. I mean, that was, and I, I had to keep inching up and get up to that school that's down there, uh, Hatteras School. I guess it's probably most of the grade levels right there, you know, hoping that the water doesn't get to me. I was never worried about my safety. I mean, if I lost my vehicle, I lost my vehicle. It's the way it goes, a little embarrassing, but I was very conscious about where to go, where I could stay safe. But, you know, you see that water coming and you know it's closing in and it, it did a lot of damage and uh, we captured it and we can hopefully roll some of that video before we stop tonight. I'll show you uh, through you guys, you know, what it looked like. The GoPro worked. It recorded that storm surge coming in is pretty remarkable. Yeah, we definitely got some of that video that that we can air. Um, my question to you, uh, Mark, is, you know, you need to be there a day, two days before to get everything set up. With the difficulty of this forecast, I mean, you were talking about you went to Puerto Rico, then to Florida. I mean, tell us about the process. What, what are you going through? What are you monitoring uh, to kind of decide where you need to set up shop at? It's that's a great question. And the simple answer is in our situation, we do follow the skinny black line, as they say. You know, we know we need to put equipment where the landfall is going to be. And then now that we have so much equipment, thanks to the success of last year, enough interest in our work has led to crowdfunding increases, and we've bought more equipment with that money. And so we can set that equipment out on either side of the eye or where it's supposed to go. You just never know. So you're right. We, we follow along, see what's going to happen. And, you know, we knew that it looked like it was going to go up and kind of sideswipe Florida. So we set up a camera system in Marine land, right on A1A. Then we went up into the Carolinas and we put one down in Bluffton, uh, right down on the waterfront, real close to Hilton Head in that area. These are areas that were impacted by Matthew, as we know. So we were thinking this could be similar to Matthew. And then we went into Charleston and then, you know, Charleston, you guys remember, it looked like it could be a number two event behind only Hugo. And so we put a live camera right there on the battery, just like we did uh, for Matthew. And then we put two GoPros out there as well. And our GoPros are modified. We use these Hero 4s here and we did just a little modification to them to make them run for, you know, with the chip in there about 36 hours and in, in full motion video. So we literally strapped one of the GoPros to one of those concrete columns facing Charleston Harbor. And then another one on a flagpole just in that park that's down there to have all these different perspectives. And then we went to Merle's Inlet, did the same thing. Put a live camera up facing out towards the tuna shack and where the Wicked Tuna and all those restaurants, the Dead Dog Saloon, uh, and met the people that own those places. And they were like, yeah, yeah, this would be great. You know, especially if they get damaged, they can see what happened. And we learned a lot about how helpful that is during Michael last year. And we put a GoPro out on the dock, way out in the, in the 
um, marshy area in the marina. And then, of course, great for them, but Dorian didn't deliver much, which is great. That's good, because you know when it does, we're going to be there. That's the way we look at it. So you just keep going, keep stair-stepping up, set one up in Carolina Beach, uh, put a weather station, a real nice weather station on top of the new bridge going out to Surf City, put a camera in Surf City. And I, I, as I recite all this, I can't believe that we did this, actually. And then I ended up going by myself because everybody else was either exhausted or they had other places they were going to stay. And so I went out to Rodanthe and put a weather station there. And then the camera's up, one in Rodanthe, a live camera, one along Highway 12 between Frisco and Hatteras. That one's still out there. I need to go get it maybe tomorrow that they're opening it back up. And then the GoPro down in Buxton. And I was like, okay, I've got everything out that I can possibly set out. And then it made landfall and I left the house in Buxton or in Rodanthe and went down to Buxton right after sunrise and finally got into the eye of that sucker. And it was, there was a couple moments where I did the old Forrest Gump thing where, you know, Lieutenant Dan is yelling at the sky or whatever, except I wasn't really angry. I was like, you know, I made it. You know, I see you, Dorian, or whatever. It's a weird thing, but that's a lot of effort to put in. But it worked, and we got some great data, some very interesting video, and it showed that our equipment can be spread from Puerto Rico to Buxton. I won't say with very little effort, but I survived it. Here I am <laughs> with some effort. <laughs> so, Mark, I think last year you started using the herb, which was the the weather balloon that you send up into the eye of a hurricane. Can you tell us a little bit about that um, and how you've instrumented that over your last few chases? Well, we began that project in 2012 with testing it. We had a prototype and we launched it in the eye of hurricane Nate, which was at night in 2017. So we've never had a daytime landfall to launch it in. We came close during Florence, but the eye started filling in and it was too turbulent. And then we came really close uh, with, for history in the making with Michael. But by the time we realized that Michael was going to wobble over and hit Callaway and Tyndall Air Force Base and whatnot with the eye, there was just no way we were going to leave our hotel in Panama City and drive through that eye wall to punch through the core of that thing and launch. I mean, did we want to? Sure. But... That is a very, very bad decision that we didn't make. We're just, all right, we're not doing it. Uh, so we wait. And we were ready for uh, Dorian. We took the helium tank. We took the payload. Um, we actually tested everything again this past late July into early August out in Kansas and Oklahoma. And we broke 100,000 feet for the first time. The balloon payload goes up. Uh, and we broke 100,000 feet on both tests. And learned a lot of things that we're going to implement and it's, there's going to be a, a lot of things that have to come together. Uh, but if we can get in the right place at the right time and have a daytime landfall, you know, we still want to be the first people to launch, you know, GoPros basically uh, into the eye of a hurricane and see it from the edge of space in, in the daytime. We've done it at night in a cat one, but you couldn't see much. You know, it's like, ah, but it worked. Now it's like, all right, but you know, we have to be so very careful because that means wherever we are, we have to go through that eye wall. And if it's another Michael, that's going to be rather unpleasant, as we know. 
Mark, one thing you're, you're talking about the Iowa being situated there in the outer banks. Um, I, I know you're talking a little bit about the, the storm surge, the water and the sound being blown out, then being blown back in. Uh, what was it like being on, on the outer banks? Cause we saw this video and it was that, that sudden rise, that sudden, sudden flooding that, that took place as Dorian was, was starting to move um, out of the outer banks. Uh, you know, the outer bank kind of flat area. So you said you went to the school, kind of talk about your thought process, what was going through your mind as, as, as Dorian was approaching uh, you there on the Ogre Coke and, and Hatters. Well, that's where years of experience doing this and being out on the outer banks for numerous events, hurricanes and otherwise, nor'easters, you know, even just training exercises going out there with various crew members over the years, looking at stuff. It's so important to know your terrain and there are places, the locals know it, where you can park your vehicle and you are six, seven, eight feet higher than the roadway. And the roadway might be four or five feet higher than the Pamlico Sound. And so in almost every instance, there's always Max Mayfield would say, you know, basically they always do except for the ones that don't or whatever. That, that whole thing, you never say never, but there are places where you know you can ride out most events and keep your car from being flooded. But you got to use common sense and you, you got to be smart about it that you may have that high ground a mile down the road from where you are. But what if a power pole falls and cuts that off? Well, then you're stuck. And those are risks, I'm, you know, definitely. Um, and in a stronger more organized hurricane with a higher storm surge forecast, there's no way I would have done that. I would have just let the cameras do the, the capturing. We had a pressure sensor inside one of the camera boxes and you know, I'd have been like, all right, well, the eye went over our stuff. I wasn't there personally. Oh, well, you know, I'm not gonna put myself at risk, um, but it's a calculated risk. Just like, you know, police officers, firefighters, they go to work every day and it's a calculated risk for them. At least with this, it's man versus nature. I think I'd rather deal with that than man versus man any day of the week. Yeah, that, that is definitely true. Evan? Yeah, so you visited a lot of places in the course of chasing Dorian, um, and as well last year and the years before and chasing all these different hurricanes. How have you found that the people that stay, uh, that don't evacuate when there's mandatory evacuations, how prepared are they? Are, are they nervous for these storms or is it more of a calm demeanor, calm demeanor that they've survived the storms in the past and they'll be okay this time? That's another great question and it's a mix. Sometimes it is a mix of people really not understanding the threat. Maybe they don't trust the source. Um, we saw that during Michael as we were setting up our equipment uh, people would see us setting it up and they'd come over and, you know, Hey, what y'all doing? And we'd explain it. And most of the people down there, and this is just speaking strictly for that area, what they call the forgotten coast, they were in disbelief. You know, they were like, well, they always say it's going to be this bad. And they compare it to some hurricane in the past. You know, Dennis didn't do this. Katrina didn't do that. Uh, Frederick didn't do this. And we're like, all right, well, and then they all would say one thing or ask one question. They said, do you think it's going to be as bad as they say? And I told them, I said, I, probably worse than what they're saying. And we were very honest about it. So some people stay and I don't know why they stay. You just go, okay, that's, I don't know what's going to happen to you. 
Other people stay and they are very well prepared. They have a plan, they're educated, they know that they are making an informed decision that may not seem sensible, but at least they have a plan. You know, they're not just haphazardly, you know, ah, screw what the hurricane center says. I don't trust anybody. I'm staying here. I mean, they have the right to stay. There are certain states that I guess they can force you out. I don't know how all that works, but we run into a mix of emotions and a mix of people that have various reasons for staying. And as far as I know, to this date, we haven't interacted with someone like that and they ended up being killed, which is good because that would haunt me. Um, and you know, that'd be a terrible thing for them and their family, of course, but it's a very weird thing when there's a very bad hurricane coming like Michael and people are adamant on staying because they don't believe the forecast. That's bothersome. You know, it's like, all right, you know, and what can you do? We try to tell them you probably need to leave. You know, I would, if I were you, and we ran into that a lot during Michael, I'll be honest with you. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about Michael and Florence and the documentary that uh, Mark put together last week or last year. Uh, but I do want to remind you of this. We are going to be doing a Hurricane Hugo special, and we'd love for you to call in with your thoughts. Uh, look for the Carolina Weather Group podcast on your Apple podcast, Spotify, your favorite podcast app, and then click the link in the show description and send us a voice call. You can tell us what you experienced, what you remember from Hurricane Hugo, any experiences, any experiences maybe your family had, uh, or you can just tell us whatever's on your mind. We'd love to hear from you, but we really would love to hear about those uh, Hurricane Hugo moments. And uh, this is something we're going to put together uh, as we uh, as we really talk about Hurricane Hugo and the, uh, the effects that it had on the Carolinas. Kind of the benchmark storm that a lot of folks in North and South Carolina kind of refer to uh, in the tropics. So you can do all that by uh, going to uh, your favorite uh, podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, you name it, just click on the show description and there you'll find a link. And then with that link, all you got to do is record us a message, let us know, and your message may be played on our show. So we'd love to hear from you about Hurricane Hugo's. We did experience Hurricane Florence and, and Michael last year that we've been uh, referring a little bit to tonight. Uh, Mark, you uh, put together some footage, uh, some, some things that you experienced firsthand and you put it into a documentary, and this was released a, a few months ago. And uh, for the next little bit, we want to talk about that. Kind of talk to us about the inspiration of, of doing these documentaries and uh, kind of the elements that, that come together to put this thing, this documentary together. Yeah, it's hard to believe we're already coming up on a year since Florence and North Carolina's costliest hurricane. And not long after, of course, we had Michael. So... Going back to 2004, in that very busy season, I've always been a fan of movies, uh, natural disaster movies, whatever, you know, and just movies in general. And I've figured I'd just kind of put things together in a documentary fashion that I would like if, you know, I was watching it from the outside, so to speak. And so I started with 2004. And I named the series uh, Tracking the Hurricanes. And so we had an 04 edition. And these are back when we had them on DVD. Um, an 05 edition. Uh, and then skipped a couple of years, went to 08. And then several years after that, 
for various reasons. I didn't do another one until 2016 and we kind of played catch up. Well, what did we do from 08 through 16 and what have you? And then of course these hurricanes have been, you know, big news lately. So we did one in 17 and one last year and they kept getting better and better. Now I didn't go to film school. Uh, I'm not trained in documentary filmmaking. I just have fun doing it. It's a lot of work, but the end result is a showcase of what we did tracking these hurricanes. And I also do the music for them. Uh, I was a music major before I became a geography major. I thought I was going to be, you know, the next um, Phil Collins or something, you know, Steve Perry or whatever. And it turns out that was not going to be the case as it happens with most teenage boys that think they're going to be a rock and roll star. It only works out for a handful of them. So music became my hobby. Hurricanes became my career, but I was able to mix the two doing these documentaries. And the one for 2018, I knew was going to be special because of what we had captured, you know, never before seen points of view of Florence in North Carolina. And then of course, what we did down there in Michael um, was really unprecedented and being able to see all of that hurricanes devastation from a fixed camera. And then the story all behind it was just too good to just say, well, we're going to put some stuff on YouTube and let that be it. I really wanted to put a, as much effort into it as I could. And so I edited it together on my laptop, did the music, did the narration and was finished. And I thought, well, this is pretty good. You know, it, it's, not like what you're going to see on television because it doesn't follow a formula. It's just what I thought people would like. And the more I looked at it, the more I was like, wow, this is pretty good. So we got a couple of people involved and, and helped to show it at the theater at Regal Cinemas here in Wilmington, a law firm in St. Petersburg, Florida sponsored that, you know, we're in this age of crowdfunding and, you know, they supported me to, air it in the uh, movie theater. So we showed it on May 30th here in Wilmington and for free, we, we aired it for free and, uh, or showed it. I mean, and the process that it took to do that was uh, amazing. You don't just show up with, you know, a, an SD card with your movie on it. You got to get it converted to digital cinema projection file and all this other stuff. And, and then we showed it in Tallahassee and, um, on June 12th. Uh, and, that was amazing to see my film on the big screen. And that last 30 minutes where you see Hurricane Michael's fury was just unbelievable. There's no sound manipulation. It is exactly, it sounds like a jet engine. It's so loud and amazing. And it really felt like, wow, that's what it would have been like to have been inside that box that day. And then the music made it really emotional. And so I put it on Amazon. Um, they allow independent filmmakers, unlike Apple, Apple, you have to have a film producer or it's, it's harder to get at your stuff on iTunes, but Amazon prime video, you go through a vetting process. I mean, you can't upload your vacation movies and say it's the Powell summer of fun. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't work that way. I mean, maybe they would, but you got to get it closed captioned and you know, there's a, they, they make sure you're not just putting, um, garbage on there. And it gave me an avenue and I started promoting it and it, it did better than selling DVDs. And I never did it to, Oh, I'm gonna make a million dollars off of this. I just wanted people to be able to see it 
and on any device that they could. And we know Amazon video plays on pretty much everything. And, you know, the distribution, uh, it's only in the United States and UK, which is a bummer, but um, it's done well. It's done better than I would do trying to sell a DVD. I mean, I don't even have a DVD player anymore. So, and you have to ship them and those get scratched and whatever. So it's done well, but, and it'll help funding, you know, for future stuff. And I might pay a few bills with it. Sure. But what's the best part is the emails and the Twitter feedback and the reviews that people leave and people that I met in person at these screenings and what they felt about it. And it's very, very touching to hear these people's reactions. And they are just uh, taken aback. You know, you see Florence and what we did with that in that category one, and you realize, wow, that was still so bad. And then you juxtapose it to Michael with that uncaged fury that that box, that little yellow box was able to withstand and capture without flinching. And then the story behind it, we had to go back and get that box and all the things that we went through to do that. The old woman that we rescued that, you know, she survived the Holocaust and almost died in Michael. And we helped her come down out of her condo with the Coast Guard guy. And, uh, you know, we always look back, the guys that did it, myself, Brent and Tony, that were there that night, you know, did that really happen? And it did. And we put it together you know, with this documentary, it's called Tracking the Hurricanes 2018. It's on Amazon Prime Video. 2017's on there as well. It was like my guinea pig. And that one's included with Prime. So you could technically watch it included with Prime. The 2018 edition is a rental or a purchase for obvious reasons. It's a first run, pretty good documentary, you know, considering I have no film school training. So thanks for letting me talk about it. Yeah, and Mark, one thing I was want to tell you, you live in the Wilmington area, so um, you really was around Florence, not only during the storm, but the recovery efforts. Uh, you don't live in Tallahassee, and so, you know, Tallahassee, the, the panhandle of Florida really got hit by Michael. You were able to show it in the theaters there. Well, I mean, I know you said you, you got some good responses, but any particular stories uh, that folks in that area kind of, told you after they they viewed the the documentary oh yeah that you know they wondered what it was like to they wanted to see how it happened they lost their homes they evacuated and they needed to know how did this happen and as hard as it is to watch they were able to see that and it it put some kind of a almost closure to it to understand wow that's what that looks like. Okay. And it's also been very useful in helping some homeowners and businesses who were denied insurance because the insurance companies and their adjusters were saying it was all storm surge. Well, the video completely contradicts that. There's a restaurant called Toucans. It's in the shot and the roof comes off and it's like 20 minutes before the surge comes in you're talking category three, category four wind damage. I can't get into the particulars of it because it's a legal case, but surge didn't do that. The roof came off. I mean, what are you talking about? And nobody's been able to ever have that like this for the entirety that we've got. It. And it's really helped some people 
I will say that it has actually made a difference. And to meet some of those people and to see their faces light up that they actually had a leg up on the insurance companies and they were forced to do the right thing because the evidence was there for the first time in history to that extent. And to be able to meet those people really helped me, you know, sleep better at night knowing that I make a living and it's the truth. I make a living because bad things happen to people, but we're trying to help those people at the same time. And that really was a big milestone. I think also, you know, seeing some of those clips, this could show people in years to come, this is why you don't want to ride out a hurricane. This is why if they say evacuate, evacuate, this, this right. is what is happening. Uh, and this is why emergency officials are asking you to get out. Right. And we were um, fortunate enough to work with FEMA and they were using the video and some public service announcement uh, stuff. I've seen it on various emergency management Twitter feeds, including Dare County. They were tweeting it. And there's my video in there. And there's others, you know, from some of these other famous chasers that are out there that have captured these things. And it's really seeing is believing. Um, but as we talked about before, I don't care what you show people they'll say, well, that was over in Mexico beach. I'm over in wherever. I just don't think that's going to happen here. Um, you can only do so much, even with the video evidence, unfortunately, some people are just going to stay. And sometimes they can have a very bad outcome as we know. So what's next? I mean, I know you, we, we've still got, I don't know, half a season, not half a season, but we've still got a good chunk of the next, sports uh, maybe eight uh, eight weeks of of the possibility of hurricane what what's your what's your take what what, what is kind of your gut saying what is the, the science the things that you look at uh what do you think we're in store for for the the next month or so the all right so we know some facts there's no el nino it died the atlantic's running about a half a degree celsius according to the latest cdas data above normal in the main development region. Um, you know, the Nino 3.4 is down. So warm Atlantic, no ENSO to speak of. Um, we're still in this active era. You know, these are all positives, I guess. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking scientifically. It's not gonna be positive for people, obviously. But, and, and then I think very importantly on top of this, we're seeing the signs from the ECMWF, especially in the ensemble prediction system, of a pretty significant MJO coming into the Atlantic Basin with widespread rising motion. And we could end up over the next four to six weeks with quite a few nasty hurricanes over, running over very warm water that's mostly untapped, except right off the Southeast coast. So it's not a guarantee. You never know what's gonna happen. And like with sports, you can have a team that's loaded, ready to go into the playoffs or whatever, and then the wheels come off and you're just like, <laughs> What happened? I like sports and hurricanes analogies a lot because it's something we can relate to. But the signs are there, you know, that we can have a very rough end period of this last part of the season, which peaked yesterday on a climatological perspective. And so I'm assuming we're, you probably got some stuff from Dorian for a documentary for next year. Any other projects that, uh, that you're going to be working on? Uh, here in the, in the next few months or so. Yeah. And, you know, thanks for uh, mentioning that. So I love the filmmaking and doing like a feature length film, 
but I want to try something different. And so what we're going to do this year uh, is develop a series and it's, we've already have a title. We got to do some copyright stuff first before we put it out there. So somebody doesn't steal it from us. It's a great title and it's going to be a series, 45, 50 minute episodes, you know, similar to what we would see on television, but I don't even watch television. You know, I watch my iPad or whatever, but we are, we're going to do a series and it'll start, uh, as they say, it'll drop in January, 2020. And we're going to have it as part of our Patreon. We're crowdfunded through Patreon. We work with the weather channel, which is one of the most awesome accomplishments of my career. I grew up with the weather channel. Um, and so that has allowed us to do some really neat things. The crowdfunding, my partnership with the Weather Channel. I'm like, all right, you know, it's going to be more work. You can put together a two-hour movie or eight 45-minute episodes. And I got to come up with theme music and change the format. But, you know, if, if everything was easy, everybody would do it. And I'm up for the challenge. So we're going to do this. It's going to be included with our Patreon um, patrons, you know. So it's kind of like Amazon where it's included with Prime. We call it included with Patreon. So all of our Patreon supporters will have access to it included with their Patreon support. And we will put it on Amazon Prime Video like a series, you know, that you can buy episodes or you can buy the whole season. And it's going to be great. You know, it's going to give us a chance to delve into different stories of the 2019 season. And as an example, the balloon test that we did in Kansas and Oklahoma will probably be episode two or three just by itself, which will be nice because we can focus on that and kind of end it with, okay, we were ready to go. Now what's the hurricane season going to be like? And that's how the episodes will kind of roll along. You know, no manufactured drama, um, nothing like that. But, you know, the hurricanes will provide the backdrop and I'll try storytelling from a different perspective in an episode version of what we've done for all these years since 04. So remember, folks, if you live along the coastal communities, especially here in the Carolinas, and you see Mark and Jim Cantori coming at the same place, double whammy. You better watch out. Yeah, if you uh, see me putting a box behind Jim Cantori <laughs> on a pole or whatever, you know, maybe Jim will turn around and say, "Oh, maybe I shouldn't be here." That's that's definitely, yeah. And then if Josh Morgerman shows up, you're oh, just you're just in trouble. Just just. That's it. Three horsemen of the apocalypse right there. You just need one more like James Reynolds from Japan or Jim Eds and it's over. <laughs> uh, well, Mark, we, we certainly appreciate uh, you joining us tonight again uh, for our followers who are watching right now and those who are listening to the podcast. Uh, where can they find your documentary? Uh, where can they find your information? at? So the brand is Hurricane Track, Hurricane T-R-A-C-K, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, all Hurricane Track, all one word. The documentary is on Amazon Prime Video. Search Tracking the Hurricanes 2018, and you can rent it or purchase it. And like I said, you can watch the 2017 edition included with Prime. If you're a Prime member, that's included with Prime. And um, that's the one that has the uh, balloon launch in it and Hurricane Nate plus Irma and Maria and all that. Um, and I'm very proud of it. It's great to see the feedback from people. Thank you for letting me uh, talk about it tonight. And we'll see what we do as we produce this new series starting for next January. Yes, sir. Not only does Mark chase hurricanes, but I know he's been uh, known a time or two to uh, chase some winter storms. So if you're yes. up here in the, that. the North Carolina mountains, you never know. You may see Mark up here too. So 
Mark, as always, we appreciate your time. Stick around if you want to. Uh, I do want to hand it over to uh, Jared Smith. But before I do that, I do want to, uh, again, ask you guys uh, if you have any Hurricane Hugo stories. We'd love to hear from from you. Uh, we're going to try to put some stuff together for next week uh, for it sh- for the show uh, as we kind of uh, remember uh, the 30-year anniversary of Hurricane Hugo. So we'd love to uh, love to hear your stories and your input from that. So, Jared, uh, I'm going to toss it to you. You kind of covered one aspect of Hurricane Dorian and the effects that it had on the Carolinas, but there's also another side that we've all heard about Hurricane Dorian. Even if you live on the West Coast, you've heard this side too. Yeah. So I'll preface this with saying that the Carolina Weather Group has a strict no politics rule. And we and 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 that's for good reason. The intersection of science and politics is very nasty. Very, very nasty. You want those things to be as divergent as possible. Science is very objective, politics decidedly not. But unfortunately, those worlds collided this past week. Um you know, when uh, over a tweet from the National Weather Service in Birmingham, who was receiving calls about the potential impact of Hurricane Dorian on uh, the state of Alabama. And the National Weather Service was receiving lots of calls from journalists and and uh, the public freaking out. Hey, there's a hurricane coming. Uh, no, there wasn't. There was uh, never going to be a hurricane coming. Um, it might have had something on a model a few days prior, but no, there was never going to be a hurricane. And in fact, Dorian was steered very well clear uh, of there. And um, so the national weather service puts out a tweet and national weather service office in Birmingham puts out a tweet says no impacts from Dorian repeat, no impacts from Dorian. No big deal. Right. The problem is, is when the president of the United States tweets that the hurricane is going to hit, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Alabama very badly. That was close to exact words. And so, and so that, that triggers a firestorm that triggers a lot of, uh, a lot of problems. It goes to, uh, and then a few days later as Dorian is bearing down on the, uh, on the East coast of Florida and the Carolinas, uh, the, uh, there is a briefing, a high level briefing in the oval office in which, uh, the president pulls out a map. It's the National Hurricane Tracking Map, the National Hurricane Center tracking map from a few days prior, and it has a small little extension to the end of the cone of uncertainty. Uh, it's a little sharpie draw, uh, draw out that captures a little bit of Alabama at the end of the cone of uncertainty. Um, that was never the National Hurricane Center forecast. That was never the official forecast. Um, and word word is it could have been uh, the president himself who did it. But besides all of that, besides all of that, this triggered just. It, this triggered just a lot, a, a lot on social media. It was an unfortunate sideshow for the, for those of us who are trying to communicate the hazards, that sideshow really sucked. Like that was not fun to deal with at the same time. Like I had to tune it out and, and look, I, I love Schadenfreude as, as much as the next guy, but it, then it started taking a dark turn. Uh, last Friday, about five o'clock, a uh, statement comes out from Noah uh, the statement from Noah, attributed to a Noah spokesperson, uh, otherwise anonymously, uh, disavowed the National Weather Service Birmingham tweet, saying, "In fact, the president, uh, the president's track, uh, you know, there was a small probability of uh, 
uh, tropical storm forest winds. And yes, maybe that is technically true. There was a small 5% probability at the very, very southern tip of Alabama. Um, but that statement went out and uh, yeah, people got furious. James Spann gave a full-throated defense of the National Weather Service in Birmingham, essentially saying, come at me, bro. Um, you know, if you come after them, you're coming after me. Um, meteorologists up in arms uh, all over weather Twitter. Did I mention that there's a weather conference going on? National Weather Association 20, uh, 2019 annual conference is going on. This is actually unusual. This is unusually early. Guess where it's happening? Huntsville, <laughs> Alabama. So the timing is great. Um, and it's just, it, 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 this, this timeline is really weird. But uh, to his credit, uh, Dr. Louis Ussolini gave a, stand, gave a full-throated defense of the scientific integrity of the National Weather Service and uh, recognized the National Weather Service office in Birmingham, had those forecasters stand up. Uh, they got a standing ovation, which they deserved. They did the right thing. Um, and uh, that was really heartening to see. Um, it has since escalated even further, unfortunately, with reports coming out in uh, CNN and the New York Times uh, that um, not, only did, uh, in, not only did NOAA put this statement out, apparently they put it out under duress, under orders from the Secretary of Commerce, uh, saying, hey, you need to put this out. Otherwise, we're gonna, I'm going to fire all the top-level political appointees. Well, don't scare anybody into action. So they did it. Uh, and then it came out today that the uh, order came from the White House Chief of Staff, uh, Mick Mulvaney, uh, on orders from the White House to Secretary Ross to tell Noah to correct their statement. This could all have been avoided with, I made a mistake. Um, but unfortunately this is where we're at and it casts and and the reason why this is important, I mean, it sounds trivial. It sounds trivial to most people. Oh, he just drew on a weather map. No big deal. You know, but, but it sounds trivial, but it actually isn't because now we're calling in the, into question, the, the scientific and political, you know, the, the, the necessary wall, uh, there and, and, and you're never going to avoid politics as long as government is involved in weather forecasting. I get that, but there's this wall there. That's supposed to be this impenetrable wall and you're not supposed to be able to, these things need to operate separately. And any, any sort of indication that those things might be crossing over is scary for the National Weather Service. It's scary for NOAA. It's scary for their forecasters um, because it could call into question the public trust of these institutions. And if there is one thing that we as weather communicators if, if there's one currency that is second to the money in our wallets, uh, because you can't pay, pay bills with this, but in a way you can, it's our credibility. Weather communicators, it, we thrive on credibility. And if we're being undermined, if we're being undercut and, you're, and we're hearing a thousand different things, we're not on the same page, that is a tremendous danger to public safety. Um, and so, yes, this should be taken seriously. This should be absolutely taken seriously. Um, it's, it, it is an important story. I hope it is an aberration. I am encouraged by the National Weather Service leadership pushing back. Um, and, uh, but it has been kind of surreal, uh, for, and, and for a workforce, a National Weather Service workforce, it's already stressed out. They work long hours. They, they, I mean, it, it, up and down the East coast, these guys are putting in 12 hour shifts, uh, trying to communicate the threats from this storm. And, um, you know, and so for a stressed out workforce that, uh, you know, that has gone through a rough year, uh, definitely not what they need. So, again, um, you know, this is a it's a it's a really, really, really weird time. 
I, I think that's the best way to put it. Um, and so sorry for the editorializing there, but I, I feel like, uh, I, I feel like people should understand that, you know, you know, we cannot have, you know, as, as I, as I alluded to in the outset, the wall between science and politics must stay firm because once those things start to intertwine, very bad things happen. You, you know, Jared, off of that, um, Dr. Neil Jacobs uh, spoke at the NWA. He's the acting administrator of, mm -hmm. of NOAA. He brought up a few points. He said, you know, this learning opportunity, social media, this first time social media is really, uh, whether credibility has been on actual mm -hmm. meteorologists, this is the first mm -hmm. time. And this was done over social media, a platform that all of us use to, to, mm -hmm. to tweet out information. But he made up a, a couple of points that I think really need to be addressed. One was from what I understand, and now I wasn't at the conference, just going off of, of what other folks who were there said, is there's no meteorologist at the table when FEMA is briefing the president and the higher-ups uh, no meteorologist is present. Uh, you guys know oh from from what we do, uh, we stream the uh, the governors, Roy Cooper and Henry McMasters. Uh, South Carolina, you have John Q. He's there mm -hmm. to give the weather update. Uh, Katie Webster in, in North Carolina. Uh, so the states utilize a meteorologist, mm -hmm. but it's kind of concerning that when FEMA is briefing the president on preparations, there's no meteorologist there to – kind of decipher through the information and say, yeah, I know the track may point that way, but here's what we're expecting the, the mm -hmm. weather to do. So that's concerning to me. And another point, mm -hmm. as he said, uh, you'll notice that the weather service doesn't produce spaghetti plots. It's all other mm -hmm. folks do that. And he said, the reason we don't do that is because Trump also tweeted out a spaghetti plot saying, see, there's three or four spaghetti plots that do show Alabama to kind of justify what he tweeted. And, and that's another is you know, we heard the governor call it spaghetti charts in South mm -hmm. Carolina. And so that just shows that the general public doesn't grasp what we grasp. And that's no, we're not throwing off on the general public, but this is what we study. This is, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't go to a doctor and make a diagnosis because that's not what I study, but this is what we do. Mm -hmm. And so we know what a spaghetti plot means. We know, but you just lay it out to someone or throw it up on social media and you don't put a lot of context to it. People can kind of assume what they want with it. So uh, a couple of things I've took away from that, from what I understand is, um, from, from Dr. Jacobs' speeches, uh, there's going to be a very heavy consideration of having a meteorologist there to kind of go through the information uh, when those ne next meetings happen. And um, it's kind of a point that I've brought up on the show a lot is, again, not trying to throw off on the public, but does the public have too much access to weather data? That's, that's a good question to ask because... I mean, all you got to do is search for this stuff on Google and, and you'll find it. And then you put it out for social media to see and run with. I, I think the thing that infuriates me the most is when I hear somebody refer to the official National Hurricane Center forecast as a model. Yeah. It's not a model. Those were humans. And, and, and I got to find this tweet, but there was a tweet uh, from the Weather Channel earlier that showed the path of Dorian and the Hurricane Center cones and they nailed it. Yeah. They absolutely nailed it. You'll yeah. recall from last year that Florence, five days out, they had the landfall within three miles. 
Yeah. Hurricane center forecast is by far, by far the thing that you need to be making your decisions on. People feel like they might be getting a leg up by looking at spaghetti models. They might be, it might feel like they might have a, a sense of what to do. I know a lot of people who unfortunately make decisions on these things. It is like, please don't, because this could be misleading. Like if you had been, if you had been all up on the spaghetti plot, yeah, you would have thought it's going into the Gulf. Right. And, and keep in mind that that spaghetti plot that he tweeted and, and that people often use is not, the full picture. It's not the full picture of what the Hurricane Center is using. We use, uh, in addition to that, that's just showing a just a run of, you know, determinate, you know, statistical models, dynamical models. Like there's all sorts of different things that go into that. And then that doesn't even account for like the EPS, the, the ensemble prediction system for the European, the ECMWF model. That doesn't account for the GEFS. That doesn't account for uh, all of those other global model ensembles that are run. So, we got to be really careful. You know, you all got to be really careful looking at this model data. Like, and, and I know that there are sites that popularize this stuff and, and I get it and, and people love it. There's, there's a, there's an audience for it. Okay. The cat's out of the bag. I, I don't think there's, we're, that cat's not coming back. That cat is, that cat's gone around the world and, and, and spread the lore of spaghetti. You know, he's, he's just like, there's meteorological pasta everywhere. There's nothing we can do about it, you know, except we have to clean up the mess. Um, but yeah, the, the Hurricane Center forecast, y'all, I'm telling you, is is by far is still the best way to do this. And I saw this a lot with Dory, and I see it every year. Uh, everybody asking me, what's the Euro doing? Who cares what the Euro is doing? That's just one tool. It, if we look at forecast models, again, and I think the most important thing to consider with forecast models is that it is a group of solutions that are wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a tool. I mean, it's a tool. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a forecast. It's a tool that we use to help form that forecast. Um, you're talking about the Hurricane Center. Evan, I want to bring you in because you and I were actually at the Hurricane Awareness Tour back in May, and this was a big thing that the Weather Service was talking about. Uh, but the hurricane, and, and Jared, correct me if I'm wrong, Evan, as well, you guys live on the coast, so you're more in tune to this than even I was, and, and I was still a lot in tune to it. But uh, the Hurricane Center's track was the only one. The GFS showed landfall somewhere at some point along the East Coast. Uh, the Europeans showed landfall somewhere along the Florida, Georgia, North South Carolina coast. The Hurricane Center's track was the one that kept it skirting the coast, but never really showed a landfall until it got into the Outer Banks where the land points out. And if a system's near there, I mean, it's going to make landfall. It's just how the Outer Banks, that's how it works. But you know, the Hurricane Center was the only track that said, yeah, I mean, this storm could be 30 miles off the coast, but we're not going to see landfall where all the other models at one point or the another did show a landfall. Yeah. So while y'all have been talking, I was digging around on Twitter trying to find a tweet that I saw the other day. Let me share this. And it is a graphic of all the cones issued from the National Hurricane Center um, all the way kind of from a few hundred, maybe 600 miles east of the Bahamas. And you can see that once they picked up, once the National Hurricane Center picked up on that rightward turn um, just off the coast of Florida, I mean, they were they were dead set. They had this thing on lock all the way out. Um, and also worth noting that this kind of goes back to the discussion you all were having about, um, we want to call it Sharpie Gate. Um, you can see the tiniest little fraction of the corner of Alabama was um, for one advisory in the cone, and that was 0.03% or three ten thousandths of Alabama was in the cone for a very brief period of time. So the National Hurricane Center was not forecasting direct impacts on Alabama at all. But so you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) A very, very small one. (laughs) 
Yeah. You, you know, and again, that's a great map, Evan, because yeah, again, I mean, God, those guys at the hurricane center are so good. They are so good. And, 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 and going back to the Sharpie stuff, I just hate to see like any, any inkling, any sniff of any interference in what they're doing because the science that they practice at the national hurricane center is, is, is world-class top notch. They're the, the best of the best work at the Hurricane Center. Uh, and kudos to them for another really just outstanding performance uh, from a forecast perspective. Yeah, I definitely agree. Kudos to those folks. And uh, unfortunately, I know we're running a little late on time, but I do want to hint, Jared, I don't know if you've got anything pulled up, but uh, there is a few systems that we are watching uh, currently uh, in the Atlantic Basin. Um, one, in fact, uh, could be named a uh, a tropical depression, tropical storm over mm -hmm. the, the next few days. And unfortunately um, it's affecting the Bahamas, but uh, it, it's south of where the main impacts happen from Dorian. So yep. uh, if there's any good news, at least it's not the, the, the strongest part of this, mm -hmm. this tropical wave right now is not affecting uh, the Northern Bahamas, but uh, it's something we're going to have to watch as it scoots through the Bahamas, the Florida Straits, and then potentially even into the Gulf of Mexico where waters are warm and ready for a storm. Yeah, they are untapped. The waters are deep there. The warm water is very deep there. Um, haven't had much going on in the Gulf in a while. We actually had Fernand just kind of pop up and then make landfall in Mexico while Dorian was going on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's peak of the season. You know, these things are going to these things are going to necessarily do this. And, and, and again, looking at some of those ensemble tracks and looking at, you know, looking at the pattern, you know, just the, the large scale pattern, you see two things that stand out. One, you see lowering pressures, uh, you know, as, as Mark alluded to earlier, you see a lot of rising motion. You see a lot of lower pressures in the main in the main development region. And on the other hand, you see um, ridging across the uh, across the, the eastern U.S. You see it coming out into the Atlantic. And so again, that might cut off some of those escape routes that we might normally see these storms get. Now, of course, that's not to say that there's anything specific. There's no specific threat to the United States. Um, I want to make sure that that is abundantly clear. You know, small surface scale features make a big difference in these things. But if we look at the overall general pattern, um, it, we're, I, I suspect that we are not done with the threats yet. No, you can see the eight o'clock update uh, shows this area over the Bahamas into South Florida. Now it is 70% chance of uh, formation over the next five days. So um, a lot of models really starting to pick on this mm -hmm. could be, um, I've seen the tropical storm, a few you have shown um, maybe a minor uh, weak uh, hurricane, but uh, that's not, I, I'm, Sorry to say, I don't know what the next name is. Uh, I think is it Umberto? Is that Umberto? It? Yep, yeah. that's it. So we'll watch that area, and then we have this area. This is the one I think that we're all keeping our eyes on. Um, Jared, you and Evan, feel free to chime in. But this is the uh, wave that's going to be coming off the Atlantic or off the African coast. Uh, well, this is the one that I, I think we're all going to be watching. This uh, this could be uh, this could be a, a big story. Um, for the islands there in the next five days as it's showing at least a 40% chance of formation. And that, uh, Jared, also the main development region, that's uh, untapped waters as well. Yeah, Mark was keen, on, keen in on those waters being you know, half a degree Celsius above average. Um, so they're very warm. And as we saw with um, Dorian over the last week, the waters were warm to a very deep extent, even 100 meters below the surface. They were still, um, you know, pushing 28 degrees Celsius, which is, 
good fuel for a hurricane. Even when they stall and they slow down for a bit, they start training up that water. Um, there's still warm water that's being just constantly mixed in. That's been definitely an issue. Um, and you're right, Scotty, that one wave that we've been watching, um, there's a lot of fluctuation in the models right now. A lot of people are a lot of, you know, the GFS and the Euro and it's here and there and everywhere. So right now, National Hurricane Center's done a good job of just outlining a general risk area for where it may form. Um, but right now we're just in the watch and, watch and wait phase. Yeah, definitely so. And uh, so we're going to watch those again. So over the weekend, we'll probably keep you up to date uh, with any advisories that come out from the National Hurricane Center with this system uh, that could be moving into South Florida, into the Gulf. So uh, we'll keep you up to date with that. But uh, it's just, again, know that uh, as Shay says, we're just now at the uh, kind of the top of the um, top of the, the, the peak of the hurricane season, uh, but we're, it's going to be a slow decline as we, as we get through September into October. So uh, really a prime time right now for tropical systems to develop. So we'll continue to watch that. Uh, Evan, I know you're back at the coast, but I'll be honest with you, uh, we don't want to see any damage. Uh, and I know we're running extremely late on time here, but one other thing that I'm afraid may start to creep up uh, is the abnormally dry conditions that are really starting to uh, move into South Carolina and even into North Carolina. We have went three weeks here in the foothills uh, without rain, and, and we may see a pop-up shower storm, but any sustained rain, uh, it's been at least three weeks now since we have seen that, and looking uh, through the next uh, seven to ten days, the precipitation chances are fairly low, uh, besides just those isolated uh, pop-up uh, showers and storms just from the heat and humidity. So uh, another condition that we're going to be watching is the potentially for abnormally dry, even some drought conditions popping up somewhere in the Carolinas as well. So we will uh, continue to watch that. So next week, uh, like we've been talking about, is our Hurricane Hugo show. We'd love to uh, hear your advice. I uh, did forget to mention you can also email us. If you don't want to record or you can't record, you can also uh, email us, uh, carolinawxgroup at gmail.com, or you can even uh, send us a, a DM on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, we'll collect all those together. And uh, we're going to just talk a little bit about Hugo next week. Uh, the 30th anniversary. I know, uh, Jared, that's a storm that it's a big deal in Charleston, a uh, mm -hmm. big deal here in uh, the Charlotte area. Uh, it's kind of the benchmark storm that a lot of people uh, compare other storms to. So we will uh, So we will recap that as well. So uh, we thank you for watching tonight. Uh, be sure to uh, check out Mark Sutton's uh, information there on the hurricanetrack.com. Uh, check out the uh, 2018 documentary on uh, Hurricane Florence and Michael. We'd love to uh, hear your uh, thoughts on that as well. We had passed those along to Mark. So we appreciate you watching tonight here on the Carolina Weather Group. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. And be sure to uh, download um, our podcast on, uh, to your phones from your uh, favorite um, podcast forums, whether that's Google Play or Google uh, – I'm sorry, Apple uh, iTunes store, Google Play. I got the two mixed up, but uh, we'd love uh, for you to uh, do that as well. So until next week, we hope you have a great weekend. Stay cool out there as uh, we're going to continue to see this heat preside over the southeast, and we will see you next Wednesday night for another episode of the Carolina Weather.